Action.net. Again, call 202-224-3121 and tell your senators to switch to a majority vote and defund Planned Parenthood. Your call will make a difference. You're listening to a best of edition of Stacy on the Right. She's sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. We will strive for bipartisanship. We believe that we have a responsibility to seek common ground where we can. There are many things we can get along on without a lot of trouble that we agree very much with them and they agree with us. I would like to see bipartisanship. I'd like to see unity. Everywhere you go, from Portland, Oregon to Portland, Maine, all you see in cities, cranes, buildings, uh, you know, factories, warehouses, apartment buildings, condos, it's the biggest construction boom in the United States history right now. Uh, and so Republicans haven't done a great job of selling and connecting the dots from this is our policies that have created this uh, incredible boom. America is a nation of believers, and together we are strengthened by the power of prayer. I'm going to ask us all to rise up and let us pray. As never before, our nation needs prayer. And now, Stacey Washington. Welcome to the program. You know what? So excited. We are um, really not doing all that we can do. And if you are doing all that you can do, meaning you're voting, you're praying, you're, you're, uh, you're working on your Christian worldview, you know, amen to that. And I'm so grateful for that. But there are plenty of us who are not. And we need to, it's, it's a process. We don't get, no one gets anywhere instantly except in the movies on Star Trek where they transport and one second they're there and the next second they're in the place where they're going. In real life, it takes time to get from point A to point B. And it's a continual effort. You're either sliding backwards or you're moving forward. It's kind of hard to just stay still. And so we want to do more. And so we can have more of an impact. Uh, I, I know I've, I've got friends texting me and sending me notes about the, this, this story. Arizona election officials are scrambling to confirm ballot signatures. They're calling people in because mail ballots were dumped at polling places and the signatures don't match the signatures on record. Of course, they're all votes for the Democrats, the, the ones that are they're having trouble validating. Now, why is this happening? They've already called the House for the Democrats and now they're scrambling to actually make it happen. Well, you tell me. You tell me. I, I, I'm not I, I, in my mind. It sounds to me like uh, some rigged election. You know, it, it, we're always getting accused of voter suppression on the right. But on the left, there's cheating. That's what I see going on. It looks like cheating. It sounds like cheating. It smells like cheating. Probably is cheating. Right. So, you know, we got to pray and, and pray for justice and for honest people to be in charge of these things and for there to be prosecutions and people brought to justice for subverting our electoral processes. Because I, I, look, if Democrats win legitimately, they won. They ran their people. They, you know, dominated the media. They've used all of their, their the gifts that they've been given and they won. What you going to do next time? Have a better message next time. Knock more doors next time. Spend more time talking about and participating in the things that are going to make a difference in the election. That's all you can do. But if you're Seeing all of these boxes getting dumped at polling places, well, that doesn't sound to me like those are election, th- those are from this election. Does that sound to you like they're from this election if the boxes are dumped out back of the polling place? Well, how'd they get outside in the first place? 
Why are they dumped after the polls are closed? That means they came from outside the polling place. How are those legitimate votes? The signatures don't match. What, what's the question here? They're not legitimate votes. So anyway, now I want to listen to, you know, Washington Free Beacon does these little, their video clips. They put them on YouTube and on their website and they call them beast mode where you hear the guy come on. He makes the announcement about beast mode. We haven't had one on the show in quite a while. Like, I mean, months and months and months. Well, they have this beast mode video where Mitch McConnell, um, Senator Mitch McConnell says that Republicans will keep confirming as many judges as possible. I just talked about the impact of that during last last hour. And I, I'll tell you what. I think everyone understands how consequential this is. Even some in the media who aren't friendly to Republicans are talking about the the difference that's being made here. Strategy wise. It's chess, not checkers, that the president chose the Senate instead of trying to win the House. He, he, he knew there was a danger he would lose the House. It is the typical, you know, kind of boomerang effect in elections. When one party's elected to the White House, they usually suffer in the midterms because people are like, well, I wanted this or I didn't want that or I like this or I don't like that. And so people come out and whichever party loses the White House is usually pretty motivated for the midterms. But this wasn't the route we were expecting. We were told to, to expect a, a blue wave, and we didn't get it. So here we are. He's got uh, Senator Mitch McConnell talking about the Republicans keeping and confirming that they're going to confirm as many judges as possible. It's going to be a judge train. It's number two. Peace mode. Three, two, one. Uh, the president, I think, has done an excellent job in picking young men and women who believe the job of the judge is to follow the law. And we intend to keep confirming as many as we possibly can for as long as we're in a position to do it. (laughs) I love it when they do those. I love it. Um, I don't know if I put it on Facebook. I'll put it up there so you can watch it. If you want to watch, they have this bear that's like ravaging around and then there's a little explosion and there's fire and it's just super fun. I mean, if that's the kind of fun you like to have, political fun. You might have a real life where you actually watch football or something like that or, you know, and good for you. I just, I don't. So <laughs> let's go to the phones. Jacob, thank you for calling the show today. Um, what's your comment? Okay. How, how are you doing today? Good. How are you? Fantastic. Um, the thing, you, you, you mentioned some good stuff, I'll tell you, because, you know, my, my journey has been um, actually from, uh, from uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan to being a uh, born-again Christian, uh, a missionary, and a Republican. Wow. So it's been quite, yeah, I I could write three books easily. And (laughs) it shows you the power of God. And one thing that makes me laugh at him is that, you know, yeah, it's the white man. He got all the money. You know what, you know, anyone, you know, know, he's paying y'all. It makes me laugh in a different kind of way, very deeply. Because you see how deceived people truly are. I mean, all, I mean, you look at deception in the dictionary. You see people's those kind of people's uh, picture. It's just really. Mm-hmm. It's you have to laugh like you laugh at a little child because <laughs> they truly believe it. They make a white folks God, and it's like, I mean, you just put yourself down tremendously more than anybody else could, and they don't really see it. No, I think to the place mm-hmm. where I would doubt. To, no money at checkers. Get ready to have my last meal. 
a guy I, I ended up uh, become uh, close to in a fellowship with, he used to steal cars. He called me up right after I got that last last bill. He said, Joseph, I want to stop, start a pop lot business. Can you help me? Uh, we're going to use your cars for me to take, take it around. I'll pay you. And from then, it's been all the way up. Mm. Mm-mm-mm. See, this is what I'm talking about. This this is the kind of story that if mm-hmm. if you're listening and you're in a rough patch, this is for you. He, Jacob is talking to you because you're talking about coming from a place where, and I I think the people who follow the minister Farrakhan, they're they're not all bad people. It's just they've just been deceived by his words. And when you break free from that, all of a sudden it's just like you said. You you have a friend who calls and says, "Let's do this together. Let's let's make something happen." And all of a sudden, everything's different. It took time. I know y'all had to work really hard, but it took it. You did something with yourself. You said, I'm doing something else. And then you did it. Oh, yeah. It's an amazing journey. And it's well worth every second of it, because when you look back, it's like you almost lose your mind praising God. I love it. I love it. Thank you for calling and telling us about that, Jacob. Um, Your story is one of. It's it's encouraging. It's one that we we need to hear it and we need to focus on that and focus on those encouraging moments so we can propel ourselves forward because it, it, we really have to make the decision ourselves as you did. We have to decide we're going to be different and we're going to go in a different direction. Thank you so much for the call. Yeah, I I, I get to a place where I'm just like, you know, if you stop for a second and think back to where you were, let's say, you know, let's say you're just just think back where you were five years ago. And if you're having trouble remembering, because at first you're like five years ago, okay, where was I really? It takes a minute to like go back in your mind. Where, where were we living here? Where, 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 what, where was I working? Uh, what were my main concerns back then? It's the primary reason I started keeping a prayer journal because I couldn't keep those details together. And so in my prayer journal, I put down what I'm praying for. Sometimes I write the actual prayers out. And I also put reflections in there from just the frustrations and what I'm, I'm hoping God will do. And then what you can do is you can flip back and you can say, what, what was I praying for? And in the front, it just has a list of things, just specific items that I'm praying for, people that I'm praying for. And all along the back of the inside of the cover of this journal, and we're talking about a journal that costs less than five bucks at any store that you go to. You just get it, nil notepad, whatever. And you start writing in there. And I tell you what, keeping track, like the lady said in the movie War Room, uh, when you keep track, it gives you such a huge look into how God has moved circumstances. You can see where someone that's in your life that you were kind of like, oh, my goodness, why is this person that God uses that person, that your relationship with that person to facilitate growth or to facilitate you starting something new, ending something, moving certain people out of your life where you, these are people you never thought you'd ever be without. And then you are, and you think, well, it's the end of everything. And and it's not, it's just the beginning of something new. I can't stress it enough. We, we need to have an attitude of gratitude for what God is doing in our lives because there's so much more that he wants to do and he will do, but we got to get in cooperative mode. Stop the stinking thinking. Stop putting this, this stop allowing people to talk to you and tell you that you are this victim and that victim and you don't know, you can't do no, 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 don't receive it. No, thank you. I've had people tell me, well, your kids are going to be this. Since you hate this, your kids are going to be that. I'll, I'll write it right down on social media. I do not receive that. Your curses do not work here. You can't say bad things about my kids and expect them to come true. They're covered 
by the blood of the lamb. These are God's kids. He gave them to me for a time. You don't have any power here. No one can have that power over you unless you give it to them. You have to literally lay down your own power and say, I receive what you say about me. Nancy Pelosi, Kamala Harris, Oprah, you know, whoever is down talking you and making you, you Joe Biden, they're going to put you back in chains in America. You think somebody's going to put you in chains? Go out, take your driver's license with you, go to Walmart, purchase a firearms, take it straight from the Walmart over to the range, show them the firearm that you've purchased and say, I'd like you to show me how to use this. They'll take you right out on the range. They'll just let you buy some of the cheap range ammo. They'll help you put 250 rounds through it and they will make appointments with you to come back. These people do this for free. You don't have to pay anyone to train you on a firearm. You can literally go to the range with your new gun, ask them to train you on it. They will train you on the gun that first day. You can go back there for an hour a day, every day. And the next time someone says they're going to put you back in chains, you can say, no, you ain't. (laughs) Nobody's putting me in chains. I'm an American citizen and I have the right. It's a God-given right enshrined in the constitution. My, My constitution protects my right to defend myself. So there will be no chains here. That's what you can do. Now, that sounds like a lot of work, but that's what being responsible for yourself entails. Lots of work. It's fun. It's fun. It's fun to be responsible for yourself and to ultimately know that there's only one being that you have to submit yourself to utterly in order to be in the right. And that's God. And for us women, also our husbands. So you, 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 got, you, you have a lot of room there. You have a lot of room for your self-governance. Ultimately, it's your choice to lay that power down. You either believe other people can control you and make, all, make your life a living hell or you don't. Pick. Make, make your choice. Whether you are listening to me and you believe what I'm saying or not, you've already made your decision. You already either believe the naysayers or you don't. If you already believe them, you can just decide you don't and start on a different path. It's just that easy. So now I want to get into, oh my goodness, so much. I have so many, I have, you should see this stack I have here on my desk for, uh, for topics for the show today. I want to first, we, we mentioned this yesterday. What do I hear? Do I hear music? Okay. So we will get to this, but we'll have to do it in the third segment because right now we're going to have Paula White, spiritual advisor to president Trump, pastor of new destiny Christian center in Apopka, Florida. Pastor Paula White's going to be with us after this. I am so excited. Stay right there. I'm Tim Wildman, president of American Family Association and American Family Radio. You know, our tours each year fill up quickly. And so I'm letting you know now, uh, don't tell anybody else now, that the uh, 2019 Spiritual Heritage Tours are planned for June and for September. So if you want to go this year, that is 2019, you need to let us know as soon as you can. Visit the website spiritualheritagetours.com spiritualheritagetours.com 
Again, those are two separate trips, one to Williamsburg, Jamestown, and Yorktown, and the other one to Washington, D.C. and George Washington's Mount Vernon. Stephen McDowell, who's the president and founder of the Providence Foundation, is our historian, and he'll be on both trips telling us the behind the scenes and the stories of who, what, when, and why. Hi, I'm Crawford Loritz with a Legacy Moment. Recently, I watched a documentary about the making of a Marine. It chronicled the rigorous training of these young recruits from boot camp all the way to the finished product. I was particularly impressed by an answer that the officer in charge gave. He was asked, what do you look for in an outstanding Marine? The guy that's going to be the leader. Without batting an eye, the officer said, we look for the person who is aggressive in meeting the needs of others. Let me say that again. We look for the person who is aggressive in meeting the needs of others, those around him. That flies in the face of what we think leadership is in our culture today, doesn't it? Well, Jesus modeled this principle in John chapter 13, verses 3 through 5. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. That's incredible. Foot washing was commonly done by slaves or servants, and Jesus himself, the Lord of history, the one who created the disciples and who created the water, gets down on his knees and washes the feet of his disciples. What a tremendous picture of what leadership is all about. Here's what I want you to remember today. If God is calling you to be a leader, focus on serving. Don't be caught up with the position or with what other people say about you. Don't ever ask someone to do something you're not willing to do yourself. Hey, keep the towel and the basin close by. More information about the ministry of Crawford Loretz can be found online at livingalegacy.org. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Hey, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I Sometimes life creeps in and, and it kind of upsets the apple cart. And that happened today because we have a sick kid at the Washington household. And as you know, I'm the primary on the kid stuff. So I was the one who was helping her get back to where she needed to be. Um, I've got her back home now, and we have a plan in action to get her better, but it meant that I was actually at the doctor's office for the first segment, so we did a little bit of a replay there, but I'm here now live and direct to you. Welcome to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. It's great to be with you, um, and it's also great to have our next guest. It's Senior Vice President and General Counsel for Coke Industries, Mark Holden. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. You know, I'm excited to talk to you about this. We've had a few other guests on. We've had um, White House surrogate and then some people who are very, very uh, intimately involved with the process leading up to this new package, the First Step Act. We're interested in having a conversation about the good, the bad, the the reality of this bill, because no bill is perfect and all bills come with a little bit of unintended consequences. And so can you talk to us a little bit about you? Your, your opening line is why Congress should support the First Step Act. Tell us more. 
Yeah, no, well, I'd, I'd say that mostly from my perspective, and everybody has their perspective on bills, obviously, I'd say I don't see anything really that bad and definitely anything ugly in this bill. It's pretty much all good. And really, you know, take a step back. If, if you look what's happened the last, oh, gosh, 10, 15 years in the states, particularly Texas, Georgia, South Carolina, red states, they have fundamentally transform their criminal justice system. And they've kind of weighed out the blueprint, if you will, for how to make it a more, effect, a more effective, more just, and safer um, environment for everyone in their criminal justice system. And a lot of what these, this bill is doing, particularly the prison reform elements, are based on the successes of the state and doing things based on evidence-based practices and data-driven practices and not on fear and emotion or hunches for using data now. And that's very exciting. So for the prison reform part of it in the First Step Act, the whole idea is there'll be risk assessments. And to the extent um, someone has um, a low-level or minimal risk um, uh, clearance or classification, uh, there are opportunities for them to take classes, programs, so they make themselves better. And over time, they can earn these earn time credits if they're low-risk, minimal-risk people. And they'll be allowed to, to do some of their sentence. Um, it's not a pre-release. It's not a, I'm sorry, it's not a, a, a reduction in their, in their sentence. It means that they can do some of it in a halfway house or home confinement if they are low-risk and they're doing well in their program. Overall, the whole idea is that we've got many people in our prison systems across the country. The um, federal system has about around 200,000, and 95% of the people in prison come out someday. So it's in all our interest that they come back less traumatized, less violent, more productive, skilled, educated, etc. And the whole idea is to make people better, build them up, a redemptive and rehabilitative approach instead of just warehousing and making people, you know, actually become worse over time. That's the goal. That's what the states have done. And that's what we want to see happen here, because this will help keep communities safer, law enforcement safer, save lots of money, save lives, and be better for society overall. We'll be reducing recidivism rates. What would light and recidivism, obviously, is returning to prison after you've been in, repeat offenders. And that often happens because people going into prison don't have skills or abilities or have issues that aren't dealt with, whether it's a drug issue or anger management. And then when they get out, they find because of their criminal record they can't get jobs because they don't have skills, they can't get housing, et cetera. So the whole idea is these programs will make people less dangerous, more productive, more fulfilled, and come back into our, our societies better citizens so they can be part of the American dream and be with their families and be in their communities. And that's the goal. And we've seen that in places like Texas where in the past 10 to 15 years they've closed now eight prisons, saved over $4 billion in tax, taxpayer money, and they have a crime rate that hasn't been this low since 1967. Another aspect of the prison reform bill is that it will forbid the shackling of pregnant women when they're giving birth to their children, which we think is a good thing as well. I think everybody would agree with that. Mm. Um, there's also <clears throat> just situations where people over time, um, if they, they, um, as, as they progress, like I said, they can uh, use the earn time credits if they're low or minimal risk um, to do some of their um, sentence in home confinement 
or a halfway house, which will help them reintegrate more successfully, we think, into society as well. Um, there's a lot of draw, um, a lot of misinformation out there about. Uh, you may have, you may have been referring to that. People are talking about this will benefit violent um, individuals or sex offenders, and that is not the case. Definitely not the intent, and it's not the case. Um, the risk assessment that will be done by the Bureau of Prison Officials will have to be signed off by the warden. Anybody who has committed a sex offense, this is a sex offender or um, <clears throat> has a violent uh, felony, they will not be able to, um, they'll be able potentially to take programs, but they won't be able to get into a halfway house or home confinement. They're going to have to serve their sentence. Mm. However, they may be able to access some of the programmatic activity, which again, would be positive. They'll do it in prison um, because, as I mentioned earlier, 95% of the people are getting out of, uh, are coming out of the prison back into society, and we want them coming back better than they went in. So that's okay, that so part of the bill. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I've been talking well, too much. No, no, Mark, it's, it's fantastic. And I'm, I, I, we need this information because there's a lot of information out there. And a lot most most people aren't like you and I where we're kind of immersed in this and we're right. thinking about this and looking at it all day. Most people have yep. regular jobs where they don't look at this. And so there's That's there have right. been some blips where, you know, Mark, I I I was early on with this because um I know one of the White House staffers who's been in with the president and Jared Kushner and others working on this. And so this I yeah. had heads up that this was coming and I was so excited, but I've also seen that there's been some law enforcement pushback. I've seen some articles by people that I respect saying this isn't, you know, this isn't what it looks like. This isn't what it sounds like. This isn't what we need. Um, and I've also heard word that some staffers on the Hill and even some people from the White House are shopping around a different version of the bill because they're concerned right. about some things that were raised by Senator Tom Cotton. So what what do you say to those kind of detractors? I don't I don't see any malice in what they're saying, but I do I do see them as being opposed to the First Step Act. What, how do you yeah. how do you deal with that criticism? Um, read the bill and listen to Mike Lee, not Tom Cotton. That'd mm. be my advice to people. <laughs> We've had him on the show. Um, we like Mike Lee. <laughs> yeah, and listen to Tim Scott. Um, so here, here's my take on it. Um, some of the and, and, and you know Tom Cotton has his beliefs and has his has his view on things, but what he's bringing up is actually not what is in the bill. It's not the intent, and um, what he's been doing, though, is leveraging or exploiting one of the big issues in our criminal justice system, if you think about it. We don't know how many federal criminal laws we have in this country. Congress has asked the Department of Justice, the Bureau of Justice Statistics, to, to specifically enumerate and tabulate how many federal criminal laws we have They've said they can't do it. It's like counting, you know, the, I don't know, the stars in the sky. Mm. And so what's happened is there are a lot of broad exclusions in the bill for violent offenders, sex offenders, that type of thing. Um, and then what I think Senator Cotton has done is found some laws that may not be covered by the specific exclusion and trying to say, see, it's not covering all these things. It's going to benefit violent people or, or sex offenders. That isn't the case. That gets back to the risk assessment. The risk assessment, which will have to be done with everybody coming in to see what risk they have, what elements they have of risk, and then getting them in the right situation. If you have a violent offense or if you have a sex offense, you will not be able to access the programs in a way that would allow you to serve part of your sentence 
in a halfway house on home confinement. You'll have to serve it in prison. That is, they're trying to tamp that down more if they can, but part of the problem is with our criminal justice system in general, there's so much stuff out there as far as how many laws there are, and I think that's what one of the things that um, Senator Cotton has been focused on is that. He's also been, um, I don't know if he realizes this or not, but one of the better promoters of the Clinton crime bill that most people see as really a failure. And it devastated particularly communities of color in the past, disproportionately in the past 20 or 30, 20 plus years that it's been in effect. Mm. And, you know, Senator Cotton is against the reforms, the sentencing reforms that most people are in favor of that have been added by the Senate, the common sense reforms that they're not, they're not in any way designed to benefit violent criminals. I mean, the whole idea is there are some people who get caught up in the system who don't need to be in so long with these mandatory minimums. And the sentencing reforms that are, have been proposed by the Senate, that President Trump and the Fraternal Order of Police and other law enforcement aid, uh, groups support, those are the ones we support as well. We think it'll make it a more just system, um, a more fair system, and we think it'll also help save money on in the long term where people who aren't a threat to public safety aren't locked up for decades. So I think, you know, whatever reason, I'm sure um, uh, Mr. Cotton has his reasons for what he's doing, but in a lot of ways, I think what he's really doing is working against the president's agenda, working against the agenda of the FOP, who obviously they're, they're the largest police union in the country. They're going to be very focused on their, on their constituents, on their law enforcement, the beat cops that are out there every day, which, who I think are heroes trying to deal with all these issues, they're clearly focused on public safety. So, you know, what, what, what I think that Senator Cotton is doing, unfortunately, is really trying to keep the, the worst aspects of the Clinton crime bill in place that everybody else, including the Clintons, I think, have said, well, they overshot and didn't do the right thing. And if that happens, and if he's able to defeat the president's agenda and um, in, in the First Step Act, then we need to rename this the Clinton-Cotton crime bill. Hmm. Wow. So I'm I'm I understand why the Clinton crime bill was so tough, because communities of color that you mentioned, the people in those communities yep. were experiencing an outsized amount of crime and it was destroying the lives of so many people. And so they cried out for assistance. They asked to be relieved of of the criminals in their midst. But it was kind of a knee jerk reaction that really it just went so far. So it it. Yes. It did help in some ways because a lot of people went to jail and a lot of criminals and petty criminals were completely removed, which lowered the crime rate. But then the ramifications of that were people who could have been rehabilitated in a shorter amount of time ended up right. spending decades in prison for things that now, you know, they, they would get a slap on the wrist or, you know, pay a, a lawyer to get them off with a fine. And they were kind of made criminals. I mean, some people, many people go into prison for their first offense and they're not really full blown criminals, but when they come out, they right. are because of the way that the prison system is. And so I'm kind right. of in the middle because I, I can tell you, Mark, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm one of those people where if you've committed a violent crime, I don't really see any reason why you should be out among the rest of us. And I do understand oh. that a lot of this comes from socioeconomically disadvantaged communities where people haven't been taught how to behave, how to live with others, how to handle their anger. But if they were taught something like that, if they were actually rehabilitated, then it would be a much easier thing to kind of get your head around yeah. 
these people coming back out into society. We do see lots of studies have been done, you know, marked where we're, we're seeing where people who violently offend and are given a wrist slap go on to violently reoffend, but they step it up some. So they actually kill more than one person where they escalate to rape and sexual assault and things like that, in addition to killing people. So we do need to keep those individuals behind bars. So you're assuring me that this this First Step Act is that happy middle where first-time offenders, nonviolent offenders, people who actually are great candidates for rehabilitation are following the model of these states where they've closed prisons and they've done a great job of keeping their crime rates low, while violent offenders will be sent where they belong and they will have to stay there, but they can be rehabilitated in prison. Yes, that's what I'm telling you, and that's my understanding. And I think that if you know, you look at um, in Arkansas, they're doing a lot of the things that that um, uh, reforms that Senator Cotton is advocating against in the bill. I mean, they're they're doing diversionary programs, they're doing prison reform and rehabilitation programs. They're also using these uh, credits, your in-time credits. Mm. Um, and, and in Arkansas, as I understand it, everybody is eligible for the in-time credits except people who have life sentences. So these have been pretty much adopted by many of the states with great success. And that's the whole idea. And you laid it out perfectly. I mean, my, my point of view, really, Stacey, is that when the government, our government starts to wage war on things like poverty and drugs, it's really missing the mark, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you look at what happened uh, in, the, in the war on drugs. And to your point, you're exactly right. There were some people who needed to be dealt with and dealt with severely, particularly high-level offenders, violent offenders. But then there were people who, you know, basically um, had a mental health issue or a public health issue like addiction. Or, you know, maybe they lived in a neighborhood or, or, or a community where they couldn't find a job and, uh, they made a bad decision to sell drugs. Well, we treated everybody the same, basically. And that is in a way that our government, our system should work. We should do it based on the individual situation. And obviously we have sentencing laws that address the issues. But these mandatory minimums for high-level offenders, sure, I think that makes sense. But for a lot of other people who get caught up in it, it didn't make sense. And to your point, someone goes into prison, even if it's just a nonviolent offender, they're going to come out probably worse than they went in. We're trying to reverse that trend, and it's, and it, you know, it's not easy, but make people coming out better than they went in. And if, I guess if we, we don't pass this bill, we're just going to keep saying the same, and saying the same thing about what's going on, that we have too many people coming back into prison, recidivism rates are high, we're spending billions of dollars, and things don't seem to change. It'll be our own fault. It'll be the fault of you know, I guess the U.S. Senate for not passing mm. this law. And we've well, got a lot of law enforcement on board. We've got, you know, broad coalitions across so the board. So we're at the end of our segment. And I just want to say thank you so much, Mark Holden, Senior Vice President and General Counsel for Coke Industries. Thank you for your time today, sir. Excellent to speak to you. We'll be back with more right after this. Physical activity is the new trend. It's not a bad thing unless it has brought a sense of vanity in your life. Two years ago, I was not happy with the number on the scale nor how I looked. I've never been a huge person, but I was, as the old folks would say, healthy. 
<laughs> I joined a gym, gained a personal trainer, even changed some of my eating habits. The Lord checked me one day and in my spirit said, why are you disgusted with yourself? Be healthy, take care of the temple I've loaned you, but do it because you want to honor this body, which is your responsibility while on this earth. I said, you better let me know, Abba. Psalms 139 verse 14 says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. 15 pounds down, I know that even if I was to never look like Serena Williams with those nice framed worked out arms, I am wonderfully made in his image. And so are you. With the heart for the Urban Family, I'm today's Urban Woman, Victory McIntosh. Connect with us more at UrbanFamilyTalk.com. This is Life Issues with Brad Mattis, president of Life Issues Institute. The New Yorker recently reported that a mother of a would-be politician was struggling with breast cancer. Even so, her son seemed too busy to see her. Finally, as she was preparing to kill herself through assisted suicide, she left a message on his phone. Hope you're well. Next Wednesday will be the last day for me. Hope you can make it. The son did make it before she died and cooked her a last meal before giving his California mother the lethal drugs to kill herself. At the time, it was a felony to use assisted suicide. She died in San Francisco where her son was on the board of supervisors and had taken an oath to uphold the law. This less than attentive son is Gavin Newsom and he was just elected governor of California. For more information, visit our website at lifeissues.org and stay informed, more informed than you've ever been. I'm Chad Pergram with the Speaker's Lobby. Every two years at this time, I launch into one of my favorite activities. It's a game of who's that. For months, I poured over pictures of congressional candidates. I've read about them in news articles, seen them in interviews, but you're not really sure who to look for until they're actually elected, discerning each of the more than 90 new House members as they descend on Washington for freshman orientation. As a reporter who covers Capitol Hill, you may think you've memorized the visages of these freshman classes, but you can't truly digest who's who until you see them in person. Of course, everyone knows Democratic New York representative-elect Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. But just how many of you can pick out Republican Congresswoman-elect Carol Miller of West Virginia? If you're really good at this who's who, you'd know the delegate-elect Michael San Nicholas. He's from Guam. A few freshmen are easier to pick out, like Democratic Florida Representative-elect Donna Shalala. She served for eight years as President Clinton's Health and Human Services Secretary. Or Vice President Pence's brother, GOP Indiana Congressman-elect Greg Pence. With the Speaker's Lobby, Chad Pergram, Fox News. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. The facts are the facts. And yes, the production did increase throughout his term. But frankly, he had nothing to do with it. This was production in states like Texas, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Colorado, uh, North Dakota in particular. And these were all state decisions made with industry applications for permits. The federal government had no role. And if anything, he was trying to frustrate the efforts by taking federal lands off of the availability list, putting them out, you know, just no more drilling, he, he shut down the Gulf of Mexico for a period of six months, changed the regulations from an average of 60 to 80 pages per, per, per permit to 600 to 800 pages per permit. He also never approved the Keystone XL pipeline after dangling all the potential customers for eight years. And it was in the eighth year when he said no, no Keystone pipeline. And, and so I, I would say that he was not a leader when it comes to energy other than the Clean Air Act or the Clean, uh, Clean Power Plan, 
where he tried to remake the uh, power generation industry without involving Congress and the Paris Accords, again, without involving Congress. So he did, tried to do a lot, but it was not in the direction right. of the kind of energy that President Trump is working on. Wow. So this is the president, actually, or former President Obama, actually taking credit for what is... He had, not, he had nothing to do with it. And so this is a former Shell oil president saying Obama had nothing to do with the increase in fuel production. And it's kind of amazing because one of the things that President Obama has been really good at is popping up like a little whack-a-mole and taking credit for things that he had nothing to do with. And this is another of those instances. So now I want to pivot over to the title of the show is Drag Queen Story Hour. Is, and why is it an actual thing? Because drag queens have an agenda because they don't like the fact that most people don't see them as normal and mainstream. And the way that they want to go about making themselves normal and mainstream is to show up and mainstream themselves to children so that they can normalize the behavior and make kids think that this is something that they want to engage in as well. So here we are. Uh, we've got this guy. He's he's usually dressed in drag when he does story hours, when he does shows at clubs and things like that. And. He's at this city council meeting and there are a bunch of people there who are really upset that he's being allowed to do these story hours dressed as a woman. And he is saying, you know, I'm going to keep doing them because I want to groom these kids. And he I I come in on the audio at the place where he's really kind of exposing his agenda. He spends the first three or four minutes of his comments talking about how he's not trying to change anything. He's not a scary person. He's not someone that the parents should fear. He's not trying to change parents' minds or kids' minds. But then, right in the middle, he says, I'm not trying to change anyone's mind except when I am, which is when I'm doing story hour, which is why I'm doing it, because we want to groom kids not to stigmatize people who are dressed in drag. Here he is talking about it. It's number three. I just think that it is implorable of some of the opinions that I've seen and some of the looks I received here tonight. The eyes that people give you whenever they think that you are the one that's in support of this event is truly disgusting. And I am not here to obviously change anyone's views about me. But I'm here to let you know that this event is something that's going to be very beautiful. And for the children and the people that support it are going to realize that this is going to be the grooming of the next generation. We are trying to groom the next generation to not see the way that they just did. And just because I said that, you heard the little plore of people behind me. It's disgusting. We are trying to teach people to be tolerable, to be patient, to be loving. And the fact of the matter is that I'm standing right here and there's probably 50 people behind me looking at me with daggers, wishing that I would probably die in a car wreck whenever I leave here. It's truly implorable. And that is what we're trying to do with Drag Queen Storytime. We're trying to raise people to be loving and caring individuals. And I really hope that this event is going to do that for not only just the children at this event, but children in the future. Thank you. So, first of all, he doesn't know what the word deplorable is. He calls it implorable. And that would be like the least of my concerns. It is the least of my concerns. But we have someone here who has an agenda. And first off, we, ha we know that whether they change the DSM or not, whether they make this a big deal or not about it not being a mental illness anymore. Remember, homosexuality used to be listed as a mental illness, a disorder. So did being transgender, dressing in drag, body dysmorphia, gender dysmorphia. All of these things were, um, they were disorders. They were mental illnesses. 
So the fact that they are no longer listed as such doesn't change that. I could say I'm a unicorn. I'm still a human being, a woman. That I can't change that by saying it or having my body adjusted. It, it, it is what it is. So we're talking about a man who is mentally ill and parents willingly giving their children time to spend with this mentally ill man who spends his time dressed as a woman, but not a normal woman, an extreme representation of what a woman is. And he is reveling in his sickness and wanting to spread that out for other people. He wants to make other people experience what he is going through. He wants to have them approve of it and have them accept it. And he wants to do this with children because he figures adults already have their biases. And there are some people you can see in the video. Uh, there are people in the room who look pretty miffed, like their their faces are clearly they're upset. And the reason they're upset is because it's one thing for you to be mentally ill and have a whole lot of issues. It's another thing for you to basically say, I need access to your kids. And there's so many unwittingly stupid parents out there who think, well, the drag queen story hour is just something fun and it teaches my child tolerance. No, you are going to be held accountable for that. One day you're going to have to explain why you thought it was good to give a mentally ill man dressed as a woman access to your small, impressionable child. That is going to be something you have to answer for. So uh, there, it's understandable that people are so upset. All I can think of is how important it is for us to stand up against this. And we've been, it's, it's been a theme this week where we've talked in our encouragement segment at the beginning of the show during Daily Confession, we've talked about how important it is for us to stand up to these terrible, terrible things that are going on in our culture. And so it makes people unpopular. And what he was trying to do when he was talking about the people in the room who were giving him daggers, he's talking about their disapproval. And there is no law written where people have to approve of your behavior. I've experienced it before. People who don't like my political ideology have seen me in public and they've shot me daggers. They've given me looks. They've whispered. That is their disapproval. I do not have a constitutional right not to have people show their displeasure at my views. I have a right to be safe and not to be physically harmed. And I have a right to leave any situation, not, not be held hostage, to be forced to listen to people say what they don't like. They have a right to say whatever they want to say. I have a right to decide not to hear it, as this guy does. But what he's, he's playing a really interesting game, which is let me point out that they disapprove and let me point to their disapproval as the good reason why I should be allowed access to small kids. Notice that. He's saying I should have access to small kids to teach them not to have the same disapproval as the rest of the people in this room, never mind the fact that the people in the room who have the children, because he doesn't have any, they have a right not to have their kids exposed to him. They have a right not to have their public library, which is taxpayer funded, espousing this ideology. And so if there are dissenters, if there are people who don't want it, the thing to do is for the drag queen to rent out a space and have story hour in there and invite parents to bring their kids. So only the kids that parents want to see this content, kids whose parents are fools, can take their children there and have them exposed. But other kids shouldn't be exposed. Kids who just happen to be in the library picking out books, kids who happen to be there on a field trip, kids who, as soon as kids hear someone reading a story, the first thing they do is they run over and they sit down. They should not be exposed to this in a public library. Now, as I'm saying this, there's some, you know... A, some person who's seen the title of the show, they're angry. They're probably on there right now typing like that little meme, the little sparks flying off their fingers on the computer, and that's fine. 
But we're talking about protecting kids. And so it's kind of ingenious the way he used this, this venue to not only defend himself, but to kind of mark the parents who were there who didn't want him to do it as the reason why he should get to do what he wants to do. I find it absolutely crazy that this is a thing. Like every time you think, you know, all the, the issues we're dealing with in this country, all the, all of the problems that have, have manifested and we're trying to work our way through. And this is where we have our energies being placed on parents having to take time off from work to go to, uh, you know, city council meetings and places like that to have these discussions around drag queens reading stories to small preschool age kids, to school age kids. It's just, it's, it's, it's tough to take. So now I want to flip over and I've had a few stories like about, there's been some real developments in, um, in the war on Planned Parenthood, which it, it's real and we're in it and we're happy to be waging it. And we're also going to talk about Starbucks blocking pornography in their 14,000 plus stores. If they deserve credit for anything, it's for this. Um, One Planned Parenthood affiliate now makes over $100 million killing babies in abortion. So there's good news and there's bad news. The good news is the Planned Parenthood's share of U.S. abortions has increased in 2015 because they've kept the number consistent of abortions that they do, increasing only slightly. But the number of abortions performed in this country is down from a high in the 90s of almost 2 million a year to a record low in 2015 of 638,169 abortions. That used to be the number for all of the private clinic abortions, and then Planned Parenthood was doing about 350,000 extra. Now, that's total 638,169 reported to the CDC across the entire country, but... Because so the abortion rate has dropped. It's great news. It's it's a holly hallelujah moment. We can go into the weekend knowing that the pro-life message and this new pro-life generation of millennials who literally know that a baby is a baby is a baby from the moment of conception because their parents have been putting up the ultrasound pictures on the refrigerator or taping them to the bulletin board. And as soon as they knew their mom was expecting, they knew there was a baby in there because of technology. That is the grace of God that we have lowered the abortion rate to such a, a degree. Lila Rose live action, the personhood movement, so many people who have worked so hard. This is the fruit of that labor, and it is good to be walking in the land seeing this number go down. But the same year that we saw a record low of abortions, Planned Parenthood reported performing 323,999 abortions. So then when the number of abortions shrunk to 638,000, so 2014 it was 652, 2015, it was 638,000. Planned Parenthood is their abortion business actually expanded, expanded. So their clinics actually did about 5,000 more abortions over 2015, meaning that they did 50% of all the abortions in this country. Remember, they used to do a third. Now they do 50%. So the overall abortion rate has gone down. Their share of the U.S. abortion market has increased. They, they're, they continue to lie that abortion is only 3% of what they do, but why else do they exist? And in Planned Parenthood Marmonte, headquartered in San Jose, California, their last federal form 990 showed that they had a total income of $109.7 million, one facility. Now, Planned Parenthood of Marmonte, well, one, one parent uh, over a bunch of facilities, Planned Parenthood of Marte manages and operates 35 facilities, 34 in California, one in Nevada, 
The Nevada facility does not do surgical or medical abortions, um, but unlike most other states, taxpayers in California pay for most abortions in the state. Thus, the 26 abortion facilities run by PPMM committed 17,884 abortions and receive a great deal of taxpayer money. They make $8.9 million from direct payments from customers, but they receive $70.4 million of taxpayer money. Taxpayer money funding these abortions. That is why we can never stop asking our Congress people to have the bones to actually make good on their promises and defund Planned Parenthood. Not one dollar of federal taxes or local or state taxes should ever go to an abortion provider. Abortion is not health care. It is not a medically necessary procedure in 98% of the cases. And in the 2% of cases where it is medically necessary, it should be done in a hospital by a licensed physician who not only has admitting privileges, but is a surgeon. That is the truth of what we're doing right now, which is 98% of all abortions are for convenience. They're for contraception. So I'm, look, y'all know how I feel about this. And y'all know we only have two spots to occupy. You can be for pro-life movement for the life of every human being from conception until natural death, or you can support the, basically it's sacrificing babies on the altar of, of sexual progression of basically what, what do I want to do with my body and I'll do it and I won't take the consequences into account. We'll be held accountable for whichever position we take. As a nation, we're receiving judgment right now for the fact that we fund abortions with taxpayer dollars. And that judgment will continue and escalate until we defund Planned Parenthood and no longer force Americans to support abortion with their taxpayer dollars. Until that happens, we will continue to receive the punishment that is meted out because God is not mocked. He does not look over sin. He doesn't overlook it. He doesn't say, oh, that's okay for now, or oh, she just wanted to have free, fun sex, and so therefore that abortion, I'm not going to count that against her. I'm not going to count that against the taxpayers. I'm not going to count that against America. That's just not how this thing works. We have to stand up against it, and we have to elect pro-life leaders who will go into the houses of Congress and put a stop to this funding. But great news to see that number go down. May it go down to zero in our lifetime. If you are leaving us now, great weekend to you. God bless you from the heartland. If you're sticking around, we'll be back with more and onenewsnow.com. Stay there.